0: So a guy goes into the office one day, and he's all flustered and he's all sweating. And he goes in, he goes into his office, and his boss is sitting there. His boss looks up at him and says, what's going on with you? This is the third time this month you've been late. The man says, boss, I'm so sorry. I woke up in a panic this morning. My alarm clock didn't go off. I got up, I threw clothes on, I grabbed a cup of coffee, and I went out the door, and the car wouldn't start. So I went back in the house, woke my wife up, got her out of bed, she got ready in 10 minutes, and drove me to the ferry. The ferry was late leaving, so I got on the ferry, and we finally got started going across, about halfway across the channel, the ferry broke down. I got so frustrated, I jumped off the ferry and swam the rest of the way to shore. And on my way into work, I passed a Goodwill store, so I was able to stop in there and buy some clothing so I could come into work and be presentable. Boss looked up at him and said, you expect me to believe that story? No woman can get ready in 10 minutes. <laughs> okay, so anyway, I figure half of you would get it and half of you not. But anyway, it kind of touches to what the uh, title of my sermon is today, and that is excuses. And excuses, if they are, uh, you have to be very careful with excuses because many times excuses flow out of what I call denial, and specifically, self-denial. And that's what I want to talk about today. Now, there are two kinds of denial. There is the the type of self-denial that is, it's good and healthy in a sense, in that it is a protective mechanism. It's something that uh, we go through when we suffer some sort of catastrophic loss or some sort of uh, big, big tragic event. So in that sense, it's good because it protects us emotionally and it protects us psychologically during that time to the point where our emotions and our psyche is able to start to begin to process the uh, you know the loss or the tragedy or you know the the, the catastrophic, catastrophic excuse me catastrophic event that has come into our lives. But there's also a sense in which self-denial can be very dangerous and very bad because. It closes our eyes and it and it blunts our perception to something dangerous that is going on that we need to that we need to pay attention to. And that's what we're gonna focus on today. We're gonna focus on the bad kind of self-denial. Now, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, just got done this morning. You know, I wake up at three, generally most mornings now. I wake up around three, three thirty, and I just kinda lay in bed and start twiddling my thumbs what am i going to do until dawn or you know i think that's part of getting older as you sleep less you think it ought to go the other way but it seems to go that way so i just finished off a uh, probably a 3 month deep dive into the prophet ezekiel so i want to share some thoughts out of ezekiel chapter 12 today and our text in ezekiel chapter 12 today will give us a bird's eye view of the self-destructive type of denial which brought with it upon the nation of Israel a terrible outcome on those who participated in this national self-denial that took place during that time. But before we actually get into the text, I need to, I need to paint the background a little bit for you. Now in 609 BC, Nebuchadnezzar subjugates Judah. Now Israel had already, the 10 Northern tribes, had already gone into captivity some 100 years before that. But the two southern tribes were left intact. And in 609 BC, while Jehoiakim, uh, there's some confusion. It gets confused with his son Jehoiakim. But Jehoiakim uh, is, is ruling over the southern kingdom of Judah. Assyria has declined in power. And Babylon has risen to power. Nebuchadnezzar is going about and he's, he's uh, conquering all of the lands that Assyria had conquered and more, and he begins to move on Judah and on Jerusalem. And Jehoiakim tries to, tries to make a bargain with Egypt who was another great power during that time, um, but he fails. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes, and he, the, the, the Babylonian method of conquest was They were not a uh, scorched earth type of kingdom. They were more interested in making money. So they would come in and they would subjugate, they would subjugate a kingdom and whoever was king, whoever was ruler over that kingdom would become a vassal of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar during this time and would have to pay taxes and pay uh, duty and all of those things so that they would become enriched. So Nebuchadnezzar, the first time he came against Babylon, now there were, you know, we hear about the Babylonian captivity, but that actually took place over three phases. So in the first phase, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem, he subjugates Jehoiakim and allows him to reign as king, uh, but as a a vassal of Nebuchadnezzar. So he reigns for uh, 11 years, he dies, and his son, Jehoiachin, king, uh, takes over and he rules for three months, and he starts his shenanigans, and so Nebuchadnezzar comes once again against the city, and he subjugates Jehoiachin and he takes him back to Babylon captive. Now, in the first, in the first conquest, that is when Daniel and his three friends were went into captivity into Babylon, right? And so what you had there, and this was a, a, typical, a typical ploy of the Babylonians, is they, they would come in and they would take the best and brightest minds, thus, uh, thus diminishing the capacity of the nation that they had conquest to govern themselves. So when, when Daniel and his three friends went into captivity in Babylon under the first siege, they lost their godly moral leadership potential. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar came in the second siege and subjugated Jehoiachin and took him back to Babylon into captivity, he also took Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a priest. So in the second sweep, Ezekiel, or the religious, the, the God-appointed religious authority, those who were godly men, were taken to Babylon. So their, their religious strength or their religious vigor was depleted even further than it already was. So that's where the prophecy of Ezekiel takes place. The prophecy of Ezekiel takes place between the second and third Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem. And so so this is what happens. Now I want you to bear in mind, because what we're going to look at today is as Ezekiel is prophesying to those who are in Babylon, word of his prophecies are also getting back to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem during this time, Jeremiah the prophet is prophesying to them. And through Jeremiah the prophet, God is telling the, 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 uh, the Israelites, or so those remaining in the land, look, do not resist. Do not resist Nebuchadnezzar because I am the one who, have, who am sending him to you to subjugate you, and you are going to go into captivity for 70 years. Do not resist him. And so if you, if you submit to him, you will be carried away captive to Babylon, but you will keep your life and that will be your prize. If you resist him, you will die. So that was the message that Jeremiah was bringing to, to Jerusalem during the same time that Ezekiel is in Babylon, Prophesying to those who were in Babylon, as well as the message getting uh, sent back through courier to those who are living in Jerusalem. So, but what happened was they didn't listen to the messages. And so, after one year, Nebuchadnezzar comes again, removes Jehoiakim from the throne, and installs Zedekiah. After 11 years, Zedekiah rebels, and this time Nebuchadnezzar had had enough. He brought his armies once again to lay siege to Jerusalem, and this time they employed a a scorched earth policy. They destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. They killed many people, and those that they didn't kill, they took away in slavery, and the land would become desolate for 70 years as a result of that. And they were deceived by the false prophets who were flooding the people's minds with the exact opposite. They were preaching these false prophets during the ministry of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And by the way, Daniel was still active as a prophet during this time as well in Babylon. But the false prophets were, there were so many of them, and they were speaking the exact opposite message of Jeremiah, of Ezekiel, and of Daniel. And so it diluted them. It diluted the message of the true prophets. They were thus deceived and in turn deceived themselves by failing to realize the predicament they were in and instead made up excuses as to why they could and should dismiss the warnings from both Jeremiah and Ezekiel during this time. So we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 12. We're going to start there. And in eight chapters in the book of Ezekiel... What God addresses is there were eight excuses that the people were offering up, that the false prophets of the day were offering up, why they didn't have to listen to the messages of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. There were eight of them that cover that span eight chapters. Obviously, I'm not going to cover all eight today, but I want to talk to you just about three of them that come very close together in Ezekiel chapter 12. Okay, that's where we are. And so now you've got some context as to how, uh, how this all unwraps itself. So I'm going to read Ezekiel chapter 12. And just, just to give you some context, I'm going to begin uh, from the beginning, verse 1 in Ezekiel chapter 12. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house which has eyes to see but does not see, and ears to hear but does not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Therefore, son of man, prepare your belongings for captivity and go into captivity by day in their sight. You shall go from your place into captivity to another place in their sight, and it may be that they will consider, though they are a rebellious house. By day you shall bring out your belongings in their sight, and, and as though going into captivity, and at evening you shall go in their sight like those who go into captivity." Dig through the wall in their sight and carry your belongings out through it. In their sight you shall bear them on your shoulders and carry them out at twilight. You shall cover your face so that you cannot see the ground. For I have made you a sign to the house of Israel. Let me stop there for a minute. Uh, Ezekiel is known as the mime prophet. Okay, uh, this, this guy, you know, when you start thinking you've got a tough time in ministry... So in the book of Ezekiel, there are at least three times that he is set as a sign to the people. In the first time he was told, the first sign, he was told to take a, a clay tablet and, and inscribe a picture of Jerusalem on it and set it on the ground. And then, between, then in front of that clay tablet, which was a portrayal of the city of Jerusalem, he was to put a metal plate. And then he was commanded to lay in front between... Uh, in front of the metal plate for 390 days to lay on his left side, 390 days. Now, obviously he didn't do it 24 hours a day, but can you imagine having to lay on your left side for 390 days in an open square while all the people are going around? He said, what is this lunatic doing? And he was set there as a sign to portray that, that he as a representative of of the people of Jerusalem were going to be barred from entering Jerusalem for 70 years. And that's the, that was the purpose of the, the metal plate. It was a metal wall. They would not be able to go into Jerusalem. In the second sign, he was told to shave off all his hair and all his beard. He was to take one third of it and strike it with a sword. He was to take one third of it and burn it with fire. And one third he was to scatter to the wind again A portrayal of what god was about to bring onto the nation of jerusalem here we're told that he's told to pack up his belongings each and every day and he's to set them all out of the house and at night go dig through the wall like he's going to be sneaking out the wall in the middle of the night and he was to do this for a specific amount of time and so this guy had a this guy had a rough ministry so 390 days on his left side Followed by forty days on his right side. Anybody want to try that? Not me. I'm not sure I could even do it for an hour a day. I mean, I, I try and sleep on my left side, and I wake up all creaky and groaning, and this, that, and the other thing. So he set as a sign. Okay, let me continue on. So what does Ezekiel do in verse seven? So I did as I was commanded. I brought out my belongings by day, as though going into captivity. And at evening I dug through the wall with my hand. I brought them out at twilight and I bore them on my shoulder in their sight. And in the morning, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house said to you, what are you doing? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, this burden concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are among them. Say, I am assigned to you as I have done, so shall it be done to them. They shall be carried away into captivity. And the prince who is among them shall bear his belongings on his shoulder at twilight, and they shall dig through the wall to carry them out, and he shall cover his face so that he cannot see the ground with his eyes. I will also spread my net over him, and he shall be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. Hold on to that verse. I'll come back to that verse in just a few minutes. There's something there I want to point out to you. I will scatter to every wind all who are around him to help him and all his troops, and I will draw the sword after them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord when I scatter them among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. But I will spare a few of their men from the sword, from famine, and from pestilence, that they may declare all their abominations among the Gentiles Wherever I go, then they shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 17, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, eat your bread with quaking, and drink your water with trembling and anxiety, and say to the people of the land, Thus says the Lord God to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the land of Israel. They shall eat their bread with anxiety and drink their water with bread, so that her land may be emptied of all who are in it, because of the violence of all those who dwell in it. Then the cities that are inhabited shall be laid waste and the land shall become desolate and you shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, so there we have the context. Now, very quickly here in the next verse, we're gonna come to the first two excuses. So all of this is going on. They've already been through two sieges of the city. Now they're in between the second and third siege God sends Ezekiel to them with this message, these messages, and this is what they come back with. Okay, verse 21. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, what is this proverb that you people have about the land of Israel, which says, the days are prolonged and every vision fails? So there are the first two excuses. Excuse number one. The days are prolonged. Now, that's kind of like a colloquialism that would kind of translate this way. And I think that uh, if you've had any exposure to, uh, to Christianity and talk of the end times, you certainly heard it from me and you will continue to hear it from me. But there are a whole bunch of weird and errant teachings out there about the end of days uh, so you might, you should, you could probably relate to the way that I translate this colloquialism into our language. Excuse number one, life goes on as normal day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and nothing changes. And I think we can all relate to that because we've all heard, you know, the, the, the world is going to end in, in December 23rd, 1986, and then... You know, uh, conveniently, the, the false prophet who uttered that changes his mind on December 22nd. It says, why? Well, it's actually going to be another day. So you have to understand that this is how false prophets do their work. They dilute the true message of Scripture, and they dilute the message of the true messengers from God. Because God is still sending messengers into his church today. But they're being overrun, and their voices are being overrun, just drowned out in the voice of the false prophets. The best way that I can illustrate this is if you take a 10-ounce glass of water or a 12-ounce glass and you put two tablespoons of red food dye in it, and the red food dye would represent the true messengers of God who preach the holy scriptures, but then that glass gets filled with water, and the water that fills the glass that dilutes the message of the true prophets is the message of the false prophets, and it drowns it out. And after hearing about all of this false doom and gloom stuff, for so many years, for so many days, the people's hearts become callous. And they say, you know what? I'm tired of hearing it. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you guys keep saying this thing, but nothing ever changes. Well, that was the first excuse that they were offering up. Remember, you had all of these false prophets who were drowning out the true message of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel. Excuse number two. The days are prolonged, number one, number two, and every vision fails. Or another way of saying None of the prophecies ever come to pass. All of these prophecies that are spoken of, and you can go, I mean, I was on YouTube just this morning. You know, this guy, he died, he went to hell for three hours and came back. Or he died and had a conversation with Jesus and Jesus sent him back. In that that vision, God showed him when the end of the world is going to come and how it's going to come. You can only take so much of that stuff Right, but you have to understand this is what false prophets do but what false prophets do is they prey on the ignorance of God's people because let's face it, you know it, I know it that by and large God's people are ignorant of the Holy Scriptures and what the Holy Scriptures teach and so that's how they wind their way in so, you know what? None of these prophecies ever come true. And that's exactly the design of the devil and his false prophets, the ones that he sends as messengers into the church of Jesus Christ. Dilute the message, it never comes to pass. Okay, so this is what they said. Imagine this. They had, been, they had been attacked and overrun by the Babylonian army twice. Now, here is Ezekiel telling them, and Jeremiah in Jerusalem. He's coming again. You have not heeded the word of the Lord. He's sending his servant Nebuchadnezzar again. And they just listened to the false prophets and made up these excuses why they didn't have to listen to what these men of God were saying. Okay, so how does God respond? In verse 23, he says, tell them therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will lay this proverb to rest And they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel. But say to them, the days are at hand and the fulfillment of every vision. I'm bringing it to pass now. Continuing on, verse 24, no more shall there be any false vision or flattering divinations within the house of Israel. God was going to silence the mouth of the false prophets in all of this. Verse 25, for I am the Lord, I speak, and the word which I speak will come to pass. It will be no more postponed. For in your days, O rebellious house, I will say the word of the Lord and will perform it, says the Lord. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, here it comes, excuse number three. Son of man, look at the house of Israel. Look, the house of Israel is saying, the vision that he sees is for many days from now, and he prophesies of times, Far off. Ah, here's another one. They Now you had those false prophets who were in there saying, no, no, no. What Ezekiel's saying is true. This is actually going to happen. What Jeremiah is saying is ha- going to happen is going to happen. It's just not going to happen now. It's going to happen years from now. How many times have you heard someone say, well, yeah, you know, in three billion years the sun is going to explode and and uh, it's gonna vaporize the entire solar system. Are you, you worry about that? You're not worried about that because it's three billion years from the time, you're, it's irrelevant to you. That's what these guys were doing, is they were convincing the people that no, his prophecies are true, but they're not gonna happen for another 100, 150, 200 years. And they bewitched the people and the people believed them and they were deceived. And thus they fell to making those excuses. Okay, and God answers that in verse 28. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, none of my words will be postponed anymore, but the word which I speak will be done, says the Lord God. Now, actually... Pastor Roman was, I was telling him, you know, I was studying this. And he said, you know what? You should maybe speak to the church on that when you preach. I said, okay. And I started thinking about it. And it's evident that there are very real similarities between that time and this time. Now, and there are, I, I think that oftentimes, I know I have encountered it that you find the same type of attitude, same type of excuses at play. And it's similar because that was the end of an age, right? And it's considered, it was, you know, when uh, when Nebuchadnezzar came in and he destroyed the city and the temple and carried away uh, the Jews captive into Babylon, that is called historically the end of the first temple period. So in a sense, it was the end of an age. And in that sense, it's very similar to ours because we are at the end of an age. Jake, if you could put that slide up. So if you were here in in August of 2021, uh, I did a three-week seminar here on the book of Jude entitled Contending for the Faith in These Last Days. And I put this chart up, and it's probably difficult for you to see where you're seating, But this is a chronological chart that starts with the Babylonian captivity here and ends with the second coming of Christ. So the age of the church, and if you're not familiar with that term, uh, then please seek someone out because it is applicable to the time in which we're living. The age of the church goes through these seven periods, and we are right here at the end stage of the church age. And so what comes next is that period in the Scripture, thank you, Jay, called the Great Tribulation. So we are at the end of an age. We are at the end of this age. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want to show you from Scripture that Scripture has this testimony in literally hundreds of places. I'm just going to show you three. And I'm going to, as I look at these three passages, also lay for you a groundwork on the things that God wants you to do as a believer in Jesus Christ in these last days, at this last time, so that you don't fall to the deception of false prophets like so many millions of Christians are falling to, the, the, the false prophets, the false prophecies of false prophets. These are things you can do. Now, obviously, I can't you know pick apart everything in these three, passages of scripture. So I'll just give you basically a title that kind of includes everything that comes in the passage underneath. Okay. So the first passage that I want to read to you is found in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. So we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I think Jake has the slides up on the board. Yep. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I'm going to start reading at verse 1 and read down to verse 13 and then just make a couple of quick comments and move on. Now listen to this. Now consider everything that we've just been talking about or what I've just been talking about. uh, And now you understand the context now for which the Apostle Paul shares these words with Corinthian saints and by extension with us. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things, became our examples. You get that? These things became our examples that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So this is the, the the heading here that I'm using. Not lusting after evil things. Not fall to the same things that they fell to. And then underneath it will come a description of what's included in that term. Now I, I have made copies of the actual notes that I'm preaching from here they were on the table and I would recommend if you want them get them and then you can use that as a platform to really dig into the rest of these three passages okay verse 7 do not become idolaters as were some of them as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did So let's just take those two things real quick. Not lusting after evil things involves not becoming an idolater. What is an idolater? Can someone give me a basic definition of what idolatry is? That's right. And you know, most most people think that idolatry involves, you know, bowing down to statues or things like that, but and it, it does, of course, but it's much broader than that. What idolatry is is putting anything in your life before your obligation to Christ. That is considered idolatry. So no idolatry, no sexual immorality. What's sexual immorality, right? I mean, we don't need you know, we don't need to look in the encyclopedia to figure out what that is. So not lusting after evil things as they lusted. Idolatry, sexual immorality, let me read on. Nor let us tempt Christ, (coughs) excuse me, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now listen to this verse. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Get that? The end of the ages has come upon us. Now, mind you, this, these words were written some 2,000 years ago. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Pay attention. Watch over yourself. Pay attention to these things. Make sure you don't fall into any of those behaviors. And then verse 13, because, because the reality is, is we're, <clears throat> though we are in Christ and we have spiritual life, we still deal with, The flesh this body must die it must go into the ground it cannot go into heaven because it is corrupted by sin unless the rapture should come and at that point our bodies would be transferred but it has to go into the ground so those kinds of testings are going to come in your life you can count on it God is going to send them your way he's going to tempt you to idolatry he's going to tempt you to sexual immorality he's going to tempt you to complaining And he's going to tempt you to tempt Christ. But look at what he says in verse 13 to close out this passage. No temptation, and the better translation there is no testing, has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able, but with the testing will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So God promises these testings are going to come your way. But with those testings, he's also going to show you, if you want to find it, the way to pass through that test without failing it. And it's important that we go through tests. You know why? Because it's in those tests that we see things about ourselves that we would not otherwise see. So do not lust after evil thing. Learn from their failures. Pay attention and don't assume that the same thing can't happen to you. Because it can. Second, sec, uh, second passage, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Now look at how he starts here, Peter, in verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. So we're told to be watchful, and we're told to be diligent in our prayers, and we're told to love one another. So now, well, how do you do that? What does that actually involve? Well, the other verses that follow that kind of give us a brief description of what that involves. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, and, and most Christians that I have met, that I have encountered in my, you know, now 35 years of walking with Christ, don't have a problem with hospitality, but this next one is where the problem lies as I see it. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me say this. If you've heard me say it once, you've heard me say it a hundred times. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? God has not called you out of darkness into his marvelous light to just use you as a way to check to see if the pews will hold up without collapsing it each Sunday for an hour. There's a reason that God called you. Do you know what it is? If not, why not? And if you refuse to do it, then you are being the exact opposite of what the the Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, is enjoining upon us. You're doing the exact opposite. You're not loving your brother and sister in Christ. So I want to challenge you. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? If not, why not? And if you do, why aren't you using it? your brothers and sisters need you to use that gift. Your brothers and sisters here need you to use that gift. I need you to use that gift. And then there's a description in verse 11. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever. Be serious and watchful in your prayers. Be sober-minded and self-controlled. Have zealous love for one another. And the last passage, James chapter 5. In James chapter 5, verse 7 to 12. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. Here it is. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Two thousand years ago, these words were written. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, and as as an example of suffering and patience. We just briefly talked about three of them today. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And you know, we we don't talk about Isaiah, but um, Isaiah was, he prophesied all of these things actually more than 100 years before the prophecies of Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And he was prophesying against an evil king Manasseh, and so he finally had to go on the run, because he was being he was being chased, and they were gonna he was he was ordered to be executed by the evil king Manasseh. And so tradition has it that he went and hid in a hollow tree. And they cut the tree down with him in in the hollow tree, and while he was in the tree, they sawed it in half, with him in it. So this is what Peter is alluding to here. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, And your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. So here we're called to be patient with each other, and doing what's right. Be patient with God. Be patient with each other. Life is not easy. My pastor. Now he's he's been gone three years. I can't wait to see him again. But he used to say to me, "Nobody escapes life. And nobody escapes life." So. Trials and tribulations are going to come your way, and I promise you, if you haven't already experienced it, you're going to experience some dark times and you're going to wonder where is God? Where did He go? Is He at all cognizant of anything that I'm going through in my life right now? Be patient. That's when God calls us through James here to be patient. Be patient with each other and be patient in doing what's right because it's during those times of duress and stress. When you just want to give up and walk away or go back to one of the anesthetics that the world has to offer to blunt the pain, to blunt the sorrow don't do it and then finally he says there at the end be a person, a sound character now you'll remember that there was a verse in Ezekiel chapter 12 that I wanted you to bear in mind so the end of the story here now for them they made up their excuses you know what the days are prolonged and every vision fails and yeah I hear what you're saying but it's not for a hundred years from now but you remember in, in there there was a spe- special message to Zedekiah who chose to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar in verse 13 he says I will also spread my net over him that Zedekiah And he shall be caught in my snare and I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans. Yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. And that prophecy was literally fulfilled because when Jerusalem fell to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar took Zedekiah, he took his sons and lined his sons up in front of him and he executed them in front of his face, and then he gouged out his eyes and took him captive to Babylon. God is serious about this. We are at the end of the age, and there are so many false prophets there. I can't tell you if it's going to be tomorrow or next week or next year. I just know that there is prophetically nothing else that needs to happen for Christ to come for his church. Nothing. So here is my question to you. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Have you done it? Are you sure you've done it? Because your eternal soul hangs in the balance. Everything that I've been talking about here is applicable to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are not in Christ Jesus, you are not even on the ball field. The fate that awaits you, lest you repent and turn to Christ as Lord and savior is far worse than anything that I've discussed here today, far worse. So if you have not, I wanna encourage you, don't put that decision off because none of us have any idea how much longer we have to live. Death comes quickly and life turns on a dime So if you're feeling that in your heart today then please reach out to someone that you know is a christian if you don't feel comfortable talking to me a lot of people don't that's fine just reach out to someone that you're comfortable with and just talk to them about christ and they will show you how to get this done today if you are in christ you know as well as i do that all those three excuses have rattled around in our head at least once or twice. You know that. You know that to be true. Don't do it. I've given you a framework that you can keep yourself from being deceived. I want to encourage you to take an outline and do an in-depth study of those three passages that I just briefly went over. Then it will explain this to you in greater detail. Finally, I want to close with just two passages I'm just going to read them, and then that will be it. The first one is found in Matthew chapter 24. Let me turn there in my Bible. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 to 51. Who then is that faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him And at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, You want to be the first guy in that parable. You don't want to be the second guy. You want to be the guy who's ready, working every day. And what is it that we, we ought to be doing? This is, you know, what is it? The reality is this, is to live is Christ. He bought you with his blood. He owns you. You take your marching orders from him each and every day. Now, that doesn't mean you have to shave your head, put a tunic on, and go live in a cave in in the Sinai Peninsula somewhere. But whatever your station, whatever station you are in life now, God has placed you there. He has placed you there, and he's given you something to do there. Be busy doing it because none of us knows when he's returning so you want to be like the first guy who keeps busy not the second guy who says ah you know what he's not coming today who knows when he's coming I'm going to do my own thing you don't want to be that second guy and the last passage is 2 Peter chapter 3 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 1 to 14 and then we're done Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. There it is again, and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that in the last days, that's today, scoffers will come, walking according to their own lusts and saying where is the promise of his coming for since the fathers fell asleep all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation for this they willfully forget that by the word of god the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded by water but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering or patient towards us, not willing that any of us should perish, but that all should come to repentance." Here it comes, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Be patient, be steadfast. Seek out the true messengers and heed their message The scripture is very clear. We are at the end of this age, just like the story we read in Ezekiel. Don't be fooled. Seek out the true messengers. Study the scriptures for yourself. And get busy for the Lord if you've not been busy.